the transition of America from being the unipolar power in the world towards a more multipolar order in which, unfortunately, America cannot get everything that it wants anymore. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to America Explained, a podcast about American politics and foreign policy from an international perspective. I'm your host, Andy Gothorpe, a historian and columnist. Today, we're talking again about the situation in Ukraine. The day that this episode is scheduled for release is actually the day that, according to some reports, US intelligence has concluded that Russia is going to commence a renewed invasion of its Eastern European neighbor. Although there have also been several faint, although I think quite questionable, rays of hope on the diplomatic front over the past few days. It's a really strange feeling to be recording this podcast, knowing that by the time you listen to it, the war that we're discussing may no longer be hypothetical. Um, And the reason for this is due to these really unprecedented attempts by the United States and its allies to reveal intelligence about Russian intentions in real time in an attempt to persuade the Russians not to go through with it. But really, I think at this stage, what Vladimir Putin's endgame is remains anyone's guess, but I still think that the signs are really pointing in a negative direction, and that's why I wanted to return to the topic. Uh, on today's episode. If that invasion has begun by the time you listen to this episode, I'm going to put out another one afterwards, but I would still recommend that you listen to this just to get some more info on the background of the conflict and really get behind the headlines that you're going to be seeing about that fighting. In order to help me explore these issues on the podcast today, I invited back onto the show Edmund Flett. I asked Edmund to pose questions to me about the situation and to chip away, chip, sorry, chip in some thoughts of his own. Previously had a really great discussion with Edmund about AUKUS, the new uh, defense agreement between America, Australia, and Britain in Asia Pacific. Today we're going to talk about Europe. Edmund, I'm really happy to have you back here on the podcast and please introduce yourself and then take it away. Hi there, I'm Edmund. I'm currently finishing off my thesis for the MAIR course at Leiden. During my previous studies in history, I did some research on neoconservatism, which, in light of what we're going to talk about today, is, seems an artifact of a post-Cold War intellectual world that really, after Kabul last year and perhaps Kiev this year, let's hope not, seems to recede ever further from sight. I'm also the host of the Student International Studies podcast, which is a really great place for students to get some confidence throwing ideas around in public, and it's really great to be back on America Explained. Yeah, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that podcast, so please uh, go check it out. It's really great. It's produced by students at Leiden University, and they they kick around and explore uh, issues in international affairs today. I think it's a real testament to the, uh, well, it's a real testament to our students. I really encourage you to listen to it. So on the 11th of February, US intelligence announced the, quotes, imminent likelihood of a Russian invasion with a potential date range of the 16th to the 20th of February uh, that, that, that they specifically mentioned, although emphasis was placed on the 16th, which uh, terrifyingly is actually tomorrow. Um, what, what exactly went into their calculation to give that date range? Yeah, so I think that the first thing that we need to realize is just the enormous intelligence capabilities that the US has that it's brought to bear on this situation. And also actually, uh, this is something that I'll get to in a minute, but also just a huge amount of information that's actually available to anyone with an internet connection right now because of how advanced satellite imagery has become, that it's really possible to see down to a very, very minute level 
the movements of Russian forces around the borders of Ukraine. And, you know, I follow on Twitter just a number of non-governmental experts on the Russian military who have, you know, been able to track just down to the minutest detail the movement of military units to that border. And we've been able to track just how immense this buildup has become. What American intelligence really adds to that is the ability, firstly, to look behind the scenes at Russian intentions to actually listen to what's going on in the Russian government at some level, listen to communications between Russian military units, and just, you know, they've put together a picture of what they believe Russian intentions to be. And I think that where this kind of specific date range come from is that over the last week or so, we've seen not just a continuation of, of this movement of Russian forces to the Ukrainian border, they're also in Belarus, they're in Russia just over the border from Ukraine, they're on the Black Sea. But what we've also seen is that this buildup is reaching kind of a culminating point where it becomes basically unsustainable. There's certain things that you need to mount a military offensive. Things like, for instance, let's say... Um, blood reserves. So you need blood in your field hospitals in order to give that blood to casualties in combat. Now, you cannot keep those field hospitals operational with that blood, with those sensitive supplies, things that degrade over time. You can't keep them there for very long. So over the last few days, we've really seen move into place just so many support elements, so many things that just can't stay there forever. So the Russians basically have to decide soon, are they going to go forward with this invasion or are they going to pull those things back? And I think that's why we've, we've, we've seen this, um, this opinion emerge and, you know, non-government experts have reached the same conclusion. What's been interesting is to, is to see that Ukraine, the Ukrainian government, has often disagreed with this. You know, but the fact is that the Ukrainian government just completely lacks this intelligence picture that America has. You know, you, you might be tempted to say, well, Ukraine is Russia's neighbor. They know, you know, they know Russia. They know the neighborhood. But that's no substitute for the, you know, the, the massive capabilities of the American intelligence apparatus. So I think that when you see these kind of contrary... Um, uh, opinions emerge from Kiev, that's really just based more on the fact the Ukrainian government is trying to keep people calm, stop panicking their economy, than it is really based on any actual, you know, information that disproves what the Americans say. Would you say that we've reached a tipping point in terms of intelligence technology, where you can't fake this kind of thing? Uh, like, you know, we're not in the position of the sort of Wehrmacht officer peering across the English Channel in ni June 1944, uh, looking at some sort of inflatable tanks uh, uh, being being wheeled around at um, Dover and concluding that the invasion has to come from Canada. Do you, do you think that there's, is there any chance that this is all, this is actually part of the Russian calculation? They know exactly the sort of high resolution images we'll be able to have. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And, and what, what I would say is that, you know, intelligence capabilities have reached such a potential that, as you say, you can't fake this. So, if you need to carry out a bluff, if this is a bluff, then Russia also, you know, it needs to do these things. It needs to bring that blood forward. It needs to bring everything forward to the border. Otherwise, its bluff won't be believable. Now, that doesn't mean that they're still going to pull the trigger. They could back away from that. They could withdraw these assets. But it's definitely not possible to fake it anymore. That's completely true. But as we start a new year, 
Um, I think it's fair to say 2021 wasn't the best year for American prestige on the world stage. Um, of course, I'm thinking of the fall of Kabul as you know, one of the, certainly for me, it was one of the absolute defining moments of, uh, of, of 2021. And so I'm wondering, what estimation do you make of American strength or weakness, uh, considering domestic politics at the start of 2022? Is, is the United States match fit for, for great power conflict? Yeah, so there's been a lot of speculation um, about this kind of chaotic pullback from Afghanistan last year and American weakness kind of around the world, you know. So the theory goes that China and Russia are basically looking at, you know, the fact that America withdrew from Afghanistan. They're looking at the way that that happened. And they're basically saying, as you've just said, that America is not match fit for for great power conflict, you know, that it's not resolute anymore, it doesn't stick by its commitments. And that means that it's a really good time for Russia and China to challenge the the US. Um, I don't really subscribe to this this perspective, although I do think that there is weakening American credibility in Europe for, for reasons that I'll explain. I don't generally think that leaders make these kind of global assessments of strength and weakness. I think that, you know, mostly every leader makes a judgment about his specific region and his specific case. So just to kind of say what I mean here exactly, I think that the reason that the impact of Afghanistan can be overblown in influencing Russian calculations is that actually, you know, it's been an opinion of, of America's adversaries for a long time that it's been incredibly stupid for America to be bogged down in this war in Afghanistan. Now, Russian and Chinese officials have been marveling in private for a long time about just, you know, what a complete kind of waste of American military power this is, a waste of American focus. You know, for the US to be bogged down in this unwinnable 20-year war was absolutely not the way to sharpen America and make it ready for great power competition. You know, there's all sorts of reasons for that, you know, ranging just from the kind of political attention that it took up, the strategic attention that it took up. I forget the exact figure now, but during the Obama administration, there was an order of magnitude more National Security Council meetings about Afghanistan than there were about China. But I mean, ask yourself which of those countries poses the largest threat to America in the long term, and the the answer is clearly China. So kind of liquidating this um, commitment to Afghanistan has actually a lot of benefits for the U.S. in terms of allowing the U.S. to focus more on great power competition. And another one of those is is to do with military capabilities, that, you know, the kind of military capabilities, the strategy, the training, the supplies that you need to fight guerrillas in Afghanistan is very, very different to what you need to fight, you know, China in the South China Sea or... Um, Russia on the plains of Europe. But America has spent 20 years focused on this low insurg- sorry, low intensity counterinsurgency rather than sharpening itself up for, for great power conflict. So I don't really think, you know, that it, it's it's true to say that um for the US to pull out of this quagmire in Afghanistan and send more troops to Asia somehow signals weakness vis-a-vis China. But what I do think is happening here is something different, but has kind of the same impact within Europe, which is that there's just been this long-term shift in American attention away from Europe and towards the Asia-Pacific. There's this bipartisan consensus in the US now, you know, ranging from the left wing right over to the, you know, this, for instance, this guy called Elbridge Colby, who is the guy who wrote Trump's national defense strategy, 
is now, you know, today busy writing opinion pieces in the Wall Street Journal saying that competition with China is the most important thing that America should do. And that requires divesting America from its commitments in Europe because America can't face down Russia and China simultaneously. It's not powerful enough to do that. So there's this long-term trend going back to the Obama administration, continued by Trump and now by Biden, of shifting from Europe to Asia. And I think that's what Putin's responding to. It's, it's something that's actually much deeper and more consequential than Afghanistan. It's this impression that the US wants to cut down on its commitments in Europe in order to rebalance towards Asia. But I, I wonder if for most states, strength and weakness assessment does does take place in the sort of relevant settings that you mentioned. And you're not very much, much, much fussed about states if they don't have the means to, to affect you. And you'll be interested in where your, your interests collide or align. But I, I do feel that for the US in particular, strength weakness assessment does does assume these global proportions. Uh, because for countless economic and strategic actors, it, it is the US institution almost as a sort of disaggregated military and financial and political and cultural variable that, that, that so many actors do anchor their decision making upon. But you have to ask yourself, you know, if in the specific region that Russia is a part of, or the specific region that China is a part of, how does any given decision change what they face in their region? And so far as the withdrawal from Afghanistan goes, it basically liquidates an American commitment to a region that Russia and China don't really care about and gives America the chance to focus more on Russia and China. And, you know, the, the what we've seen and heard from the Biden administration is very much a continuation of this desire to focus much more strongly on the Asia Pacific, on China, that, you know, that we saw that with AUKUS, which we talked about on that previous episode. So I think that, you know, often this argument about Afghanistan kind of comes down to, well, it's kind of seen as as communicating some sort of personal weakness on the part of Joe Biden or some kind of irresoluteness on the part of the American government. But I think that if Beijing today, you don't really see that irresoluteness when you look out of your region, but you do see that when you look from Moscow westwards towards Europe. And, you know, that's something that, that dates back a decade or more. But so if we maybe uh, pivot back to Ukraine, um, the question is, should it be a core strategic of the U.S.? But again, sort of tackling that U.S. as a global institution, U.S. is a, a retren- engaging in retrenchment back to, back to its genuine material interests. If Ukraine isn't a core strategic interest of the U.S., or indeed it shouldn't, then why does it talk about it as if it is? So I, I think that it's just a plain fact that Ukraine is not a core strategic interest of the United States. I mean, it's right next door to Russia. It's been ruled by some form of Russian polity for almost all of American history, you know, the last couple of decades accepted, with no particular negative implications for American security. It's not important in terms of geography or resources, um, you know, except maybe for someone planning an invasion of Russia. This is one of the reasons that Russia is so obsessed with Ukraine, because whenever Russia has been invaded over the previous centuries, then the route of that invasion has been through Ukraine. But, you know, the US isn't planning an invasion of Russia, you know, whatever Moscow's propaganda might say. So there's not really any material interest that I see 
that America has in Ukraine. Now, on the other hand, Ukraine is a core strategic interest of Russia. Reasons of history and geography and geopolitics. And Russia's made it very, very clear that it will not tolerate a pro-Western Ukraine on its borders. And it's willing to use military force to preclude that, as indeed it already did in 2014 when, um, when it invaded Crimea. So I think that insofar as we, we hear things from America that sound like they, um, they are identifying Ukraine as a core American interest, then that's to do with this thing that we call the liberal international order, right? That Ukraine might not be materially important for the United States, but Russia's encroachment upon it is seen as a general attack on this order of sovereign states that, that exists within the world. You know, it's the American point of view that um, in, as a general principle, there should not be spheres of influence that great powers exercise in the world today. There shouldn't be empires. Every country should be free to choose its own internal governing arrangements and, and choose its foreign policy. And the Russian encroachment on Ukraine is seen as a, as, as a big threat to that. What's happening here is that Russia's very concrete material interest in control over Ukraine is running up against America's interest in this principle, this abstract idea of liberal international order. And I'm afraid that when those two things clash, the abstract is always going to lose out because no American president is going to risk a civilization ending nuclear war over a country that's of such little practical importance to the United States, but such enormous material importance to Russia. Now, this is, um, you know, it's important for me to say that I, I, I don't say these things kind of with um, approval or disapproval. I'm just kind of stating the situation as, as I see it. And, you know, I do think that what Russia is likely to do in Ukraine is going to prove incredibly damaging to, to this international order. And that international order is, is something that I believe in. But Unfortunately, that doesn't persuade me away from, from the logic of the situation as I see it. I, I, I do wonder if, if nuclear, you know, mutual nuclear destruction is on the table, then I'd have thought that the ratio between costs and benefits in that scenario is uh, almost as uh, absurdly dreadful for Russia, whatever its interest in Ukraine, uh, as it would be for the United States. Yeah, I, I think that that is definitely true. But the problem is that mutually assured destruction requires credibility. To, 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 to operate. It only works when both sides genuinely believe that the other side is willing to escalate to that level in defense of what whatever it's trying to defend. And I just don't think that in this case that that's a credible claim for any American president to make. No, and, and these are the situations when mutually assured destruction and, and when deterrence becomes actually very, very dangerous when you have um, when you have two sides that have very different perceptions of the relative balance of interests in, in the situation, because that might mean that one of those sides is going to really, really miscalculate and actually end up in a nuclear war because, you know, they um, believe that the other side doesn't see this thing as, as, a, as a core interest when mm. it does. And that's actually, I think, one reason why America, American policymakers have been very, very clear to communicate that they don't see Ukra the defense of Ukraine as a core national interest. If they did, mm. we'd see American forces arriving in Ukraine right now. But what we actually see is that every single time an American policymaker 
opens his or her mouth, he goes out, he or she goes out of their way to make plain that American forces will not be going to Ukraine. Mm. Um, so, you know, I just think that, that mutually assured destruction is just, just not going to work in this situation um, because it's not credible for the, that America is going to risk the destruction of New York City to save Kiev. I don't think anyone believes that. Mm. So the United States has definitely left that biggest of big sticks on the table. And perhaps, you know, in, in perhaps that supports your, your arguments that the United States fundamentally does recognize that, that, that Ukraine is not a core material interest. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Um, but that also segues quite quite nicely onto onto the ne- next question, which is that the United States has not uh, committed ho- uh, for heartily to the defense of Ukraine. In fact, as as you outlined in your in your article um, recently published on this issue, um, the United States has really just committed to reinforcement of NATO, um, military assistance of Ukraine, and, and other other logistical assistance, perhaps cancellation of Nord Stream two. Um, and so one might say that this is actually really. Uh, taken together, this is really not enough to, to deter Putin. So, so th- perhaps this is showing a weak hand early. And what I want to know is that we're all very relieved that the fiery fury of the Trump administration and you know, geopolitics by tweet uh, seem, seems to be in the past. But is this not a circumstance where actually a, a bit more bluff and bluster perhaps could secure slightly better outcomes uh, for, for the United States and perhaps the West more broadly? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I think this is a question that, that's a good one and, and it's really worth focusing on that, you know, so I kind of start start at the end there and, and then work backwards. So the argument gets made that basically there's this thing called the man-man theory and it dates back a long time and Eisenhower talked about it. Nixon really kind of tried to make it a key part of his persona where he basically tried to cultivate this image of unpredictability and of dangerousness of in a way to try to basically convince Americans America's enemies well you don't want to mess with Richard Nixon because who knows what he might do you know he might just reach for that nuclear button straight away and Trump you know I think probably not quite so rationally and, and not quite so intentionally cultivated the same kind of mystique right so he talked about fire and fury against north korea although you know what what we often forget is that he then pivoted to towards probably you know the friendliest attitude towards the north korean regime of of any recent president but he did at least have this phase of, of fire and fury and so the argument is here that basically if you had a president like trump who was much kind of um you know very aggressive or could be very aggressive although again you know trump was actually very very friendly towards russia the theory is that if pushed he would have been willing to threaten all sorts of things and then the russians would have just backed off now when i look at relations between the u.s and russia during the trump administration you know i I see like a a little bit of of merit in this argument you know that i do definitely think that trump's just kind of sheer kind of chaos that he cultivated in policy making the fact you never knew what he was going to do next that does have some kind of deterrent effect 
And the problem is that I don't really think that there's any kind of like generalizable lesson from that, you know, except to say, well, it's good to have a crazy president, which it's not, you know, in general, <laughs> good to have a crazy president, you know, because, and, and that's not a sustainable long-term situation. You know, I, I kind of think about Max Weber's distinction between charismatic and bureaucratic leadership, you know, and charismatic mm-hmm. leadership is inherently unsustainable. You can't base foreign policy over decades on one personality. You have mm. to base it on material interests okay though you know you don't have to maybe do the madman thing to deter someone you can just threaten kind of stronger concrete material responses to what they do so you know the argument is is made that well there's you know there's all kinds of things uh, people say that that biden could have threatened towards russia that might have deterred them from doing this now where i come down on this question is that i think that you know there's probably always going to be ways that we could identify that the Biden administration could have done a little bit more at the margins, could have threatened a little bit more at the margins in order to deter Russia. But at the end of the day, unless they were going to be willing to put American troops in the path of that Russian advance, or they were going to extend the American nuclear umbrella over Ukraine, that just the balance of interest that exists here says to me that it seems that Putin is willing to take very, very high costs in order to do what Mm. he wants to do in Ukraine. And I'm not actually sure that America really has it within its power to do something that will deter him while at the same time not escalating this conflict to the point that it becomes opposes a risk of general war between the United States and Russia, that's not something that the Biden administration wants. It does not want this to uh, get to the point of a war between the US and Russia. So I'm not really sure, you know, what the Biden administration could have credibly promised to do that would have changed Russia's calculus fundamentally. What they've tried to do, you know, probably the most consequential thing that they've tried to do at this point before the invasion actually takes place is that they've been funneling advanced military equipment to Ukraine. You know, Ukraine's been getting advanced military equipment from Turkey and, and other NATO states just to basically make it clear that, you know, this isn't going to be a cakewalk for the Russian military. They're going to take probably tens of thousands of casualties in part due to that military equipment that's been given to Ukraine. I don't think any serious analyst believes that this means the Ukrainian military can hold off the Russian military, but you're just increasing those costs at the margins a little bit in a hope that it's going to dissuade the Russians. And you know, I think that we're always going to be able to identify maybe a little bit more they could have done here, a little bit more they could have done there. But I'm not sure that you can ultimately escape that balance of interest that I've outlined. And, and the the fact that just the risk appetite of these two actors is very, very different in this situation. I do wonder if if Putin's, uh, this is at least partially a play for domestic support. You know, there was a, his popularity perhaps reached its height after the annexation of Crimea and um, after the 2014 crisis. I do wonder if the fact of major Russian casualties uh, would undermine any potential uh, popularity benefit that, a, that an aggressive move on Ukraine actually actually would, would have. 
Yeah, you know, and I mean, so I I, I, I try hard not to um, speculate on Putin's calculus just because I, I'm not an expert on Russian foreign policy. And I, I don't think that we really kind of know enough to, to know his calculus. But I think that, you know, the the consideration that you raise is is definitely one that we need to consider. And, you know, this has been um, this has been a big part of a big debate that we've seen playing out um, in Washington and elsewhere about, you know, if this, if Russia launches a military attack on Ukraine, what are its goals going to be? What is it actually going to try to do? Because if the Russian military is going to try to occupy Kiev and impose a pro-Russian regime on Ukraine and then keep Russian military forces in that country to, you know, uphold that regime... That is going to be incredibly costly in terms of lives and money Mm. for the Russian military. And I can't quite get my head around the idea that the Kremlin is going to be stupid enough to try and do that, particularly after watching how badly that went for America in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I guess, you Mm. know, what we also, you know, learn from operations like Iraq and Afghanistan, like the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s, is that leaders very very often convince themselves that the costs of something like this will be much lower than they will actually be you know if america when it went into afghanistan in 2001 had believed that 20 years and trillions of dollars later it would still be there that would have unfolded very differently but you know leaders are, are not good mm. at, uh, they, they believe that they're going to be greeted as liberators right that was the line from from iraq in 2003 and I guess that we can't rule out the fact that Putin just has a very unrealistic idea of the calculus that faces him here. Um, you know, and I, I you know, I and, and most of the military analysts that I respect can't really get our heads around the, the idea that he's really going to try to occupy Ukraine for years on end. Um, uh, yeah, mm. so I, it, we're really in the dark about that. Well, if we then think about the costs of very strategic actions upon the West. Of course, there is a norm, uh, generalized great power uh, military direct conflict uh, on the table, but but I think the United States has made clear its uh, unwillingness to pick, pick up that stick. But then if we think about um, actually the case re- recently made by, by yourself in your recent America Explained article, where you reason to a very difficult conclusion that a negotiated settlement accepting the buffer state Ukraine would actually be the best option for the West. Is this, uh, this there is a way to frame this as a very cheap, uh, a, a cheap um, solution for the West, because it seems to me unlikely that Ukraine ever would be uh, taken into NATO. So this is sort of saying we won't do something that we wouldn't do anyway. Uh, and so that actually, you know, in, in, in support of your, your conclusion, it, I think that can be framed as actually a very cheap way to diffuse the, the com- conflict. But that, of course, depends if there was ever any realistic chance of Ukraine uh, enjoying uh, greatly enhanced American and, and Western security guarantees. Yeah, so you know, just to say a little bit about about uh, this proposal that I put forward, you know, which is similar to proposals put put forward by others as well. You know, my idea is basically to say that we all know that Ukraine is never actually going to be a member of NATO because we know that Ukraine's admission to NATO would be a causus belli for Russia to engage in general war against the West. And we don't want general war with Russia. So we just know that Ukraine is not ever going to be admitted to NATO. But we insist on maintaining this kind of fiction that it is. And, you know, what 
I think would be most um, most useful and, and just most logical for me at this point is to essentially say that, you know, Ukraine has become a really, really big problem for NATO because we now have this kind of halfway house, not really, but kind of commitment to Ukraine's defense is actually weakening the credibility of the rest of NATO because, you know, it, people in the Baltic states, people in Poland, you know, or people all over the world look at what's happening in Ukraine and they say, oh, well, you know, NATO is losing it, right? NATO is not defending Ukraine, so hence NATO is weak. How can we be sure that NATO is really going to defend Lithuania? How can we be sure that NATO is really going to defend Poland? In my view, what it's really necessary to do here is to make very clear that NATO will be defended, but that Ukraine, sadly, you know, and it's a tragedy for the people of Ukraine, because if that's something that's going to happen anyway, because Russia is willing to invade Ukraine, we're not going to stop that. It would have been better to get to this point diplomatically rather than having this war happen that's going to be tremendously destructive for the people of Ukraine and tremendously destructive for the credibility of, of, of NATO as well. But of course, this raises all kinds of, of moral uh, questions as well. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, so if we could potentially reach, reach agreement, um, that that's that's good for the United States. That's good for the West, certainly good for the EU. Uh, would such an agreement be good for Ukraine? Um, would the West be able to secure? You know, when we say buffer states, we really mean buffer states. Um, so uh, a Ukraine that really does re retain its uh, sovereignty, with the exception of forming military alliances, would that outcome be achievable, or would conceding uh, Ukrainian ability to form military alliance essentially doom it to to Russian uh, domination? Yeah, so I mean, you know, this this wouldn't be a good outcome for Ukraine. You know, obviously the best situation for Ukraine would be to have sovereignty and to direct its own external affairs and to decide on the internal character of its own governing arrangements. But, you know, I think that in the situation that we find ourselves in, that just doesn't seem possible for Ukraine. And what actually worries me is that by... Um, holding out this kind of hope but but you know we kind of made this promise to ukraine that actually we have no intention of keeping and i actually find that to be immoral in a way as well because we persuaded ukrainian elites and and the ukrainian public to commit themselves to integration with the west to to antagonize russia but we don't actually intend to defend them. We don't actually intend to, to, to help them in their hour of need. You know, we're saying, well, NATO refuses to, to rule out membership for Ukraine because we have this principle of the open door. But when the tanks start rolling, the bombs start falling, it's going to be Ukrainians who pay the price for that policy choice. It's not going to be Americans. It's not going to be Germans. It's it's not going to be people in France. So I think that, you know, there's there's there's... There's many different moral dimensions to to what's happening here, you know, and a, a couple more that I would point to is, you know, to say firstly that it is, of course, obviously the best situation for Ukraine to direct its own affairs and have sovereignty. But, you know, the, the U.S. has not afforded that privilege to many, many countries that it considers strategically important throughout history. And the fact of the matter is that Moscow has the power in this situation 
it seems to enforce that negative outcome on Ukraine. And unfortunately, that's a, that's a fact of international life as we face it today. You know, in, in international politics, we're always picking between bad outcomes. We're always picking between bad options. And actually, the avoidance of nuclear war between Russia and America is also a very, very high moral good. And, and it's harsh to say that, but this is the sort of logic that underpins a great deal of the compromise that exists within great power relations, you know? There's a reason that we don't invade China to liberate the Uyghurs, even though China is carrying out a genocide against the Uyghurs. And that's because we value the lack of great power war between US, the US and China higher than we value the protection of the Uyghurs. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible way to phrase things, and it goes against so much of what we tell ourselves about the liberal international order and about the role of morality in our foreign policy. But... At the end of the day, the avoidance of nuclear war between Russia and America, something that may destroy civilization as we know it, is a very mm. high moral good. It's actually higher than the future of Ukraine. Horrible thing to say, but true. This reminds me a bit of during the SALT II uh, negotiations uh, between between the um, United States and Soviet Union, actually, about removal of um, missiles from Europe. And Hello? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I think we cut out from that. Yes, about removal of missiles uh, from, from Europe. And actually, I, I think the Soviet Union had many more missiles in Europe at that time in the United States. And so in negotiation, when the United States asked for zero missiles on either side, that actually entailed Soviet removal of actual missiles in exchange for American removal of hypothetical missiles. And I think there is some, perhaps some parallel to this circumstance where Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And if the major United States concession is that um, Ukraine will not become a member of NATO, then that's purely a purely hypothetical concession. Um, not changing any fact on the ground. Whereas, if that can be exchanged for a Russian concession of removal of perhaps uh, you know over a hundred thousand troops and major military infrastructure on the border of Ukraine, that's a very, very bit real, tangible concession on the Russian side. I, I agree. You know that the at least in terms of the um, of the future status of Ukraine, like you say, the American interest here is or the american commitment here that, that would be liquidated is hypothetical but you know i mean also it, it does the reason that people are so unwilling to give that up is because it's seen as having and indeed it does have these broader implications for world order and you know we all would like to live in a world where sovereignty is respected and spheres of influence don't exist but what I sometimes find a little bit difficult to get my head around is that, you know, well, Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 and Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. And in neither of these instances did the whole liberal international order come crashing down, right? This was, you know, undoubtedly, a, you know, a tragedy, a, a local tragedy. It undoubtedly had implications for broader world order. But you know, we ultimately, you know, the order adapts, you know, we learn to live with these things, we learn to adapt a Western foreign policy around them. And that's why, you know, I, I mean, I consider the, I consider NATO inviolable. So I'm definitely not saying, okay, we cut off Ukraine, and then next on my agenda is let's cut off Poland, right? What I'm saying is that we are dealing here with negotiating the transition from the Cold War order to the post-Cold War order, order. Ukraine is kind of a, a bit of unfinished business from that transition, and we need to resolve that business in a way that's sustainable. Mm -hmm. 
and a way that allows us to hold on to as much of the international order, as much of the good things about the order that we like as possible. But I think that just the facts on the ground tell you that the situation in Ukraine is not going to go the way that we want it to go. You know, and and we have mm-hmm. to adapt ourselves to that situation. You know, and it, it doesn't have to be the beginning of the downfall of the whole liberal international order. It might be as managed to climb. Well, I mean, so I think that what we are viewing here is is the decline of America. You know, if you want to use the word decline, you know, I might call it transition. The transition of America from being the unipolar power in the world towards a more multipolar order in which, unfortunately, America cannot get everything that it wants anymore. And I think that it's actually, you know, it's kind of a bit dangerous that we have a generation or two of American elites who came to, you know, came of age at this moment where America didn't really have to make compromises, you know. So the idea of, you know, Francis Fukuyama and we're at the end of history and now liberal principles will march across the whole world, you know, and we'll we'll all live happily ever after. That moment is really gone now and Russia and China are showing that they can force us into compromises and they can force us into having to make hard choices between what we consider what interests we consider defending and what interests we don't consider defending and you know unfortunately as china's power grows and as russia takes advantage of america's distraction and its pivot towards asia we're going to be faced with more and more of of these difficult choices now that doesn't have to be the end of the world i mean the cold war was full of these kinds of choices and they were tragic and you know they led to immense human suffering and and it's a horrible horrible thing but you know that is more the reality of international politics as it's existed throughout human history than this moment in the last couple of decades where we've kind of been on a little bit of a holiday from great power competition because of America's unipolar power. And I'm afraid, I just don't think that we live in that era anymore. And it's very, very jarring for many people um, in the West to to come to terms with that and, and to adjust their expectations accordingly. Certainly we can. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. But I, I do wonder if the losses might end up compounding. If we think about how uh, the, the British Empire ended and uh, you know a, a world order in which Britain played quite a prominent role, uh, it was all very sudden and very quick. And um, a lot of actors, as I as I say, do depend on the United States. And if in quick succession we've got what what could be phrased as a, a major defeat in Afghanistan, and then um, uh, and then a strategic victory for for Putin, I do wonder if uh, many actors will be looking for more more local um, local actors to, to to ally with instead of the United States. Um, and it might be, I think, the most substantive objection to the argument you make has to be that core strategic material interests elsewhere do depend on the outcome of this crisis well so you know the the way that i would frame that process of states deciding that in their region the united states is no longer going to be so committed because of this rebalance to the asia pacific 
The way I would frame that is to say that that's an opportunity, for instance, for European states to step up and actually build defense capabilities. And you know, one of the reasons that many American strategists are kind of comfortable with this shift away from Europe towards the Asia Pacific is because they say that it's actually, or it should be at least, much, much easier for the European states to get their act together and provide a counterweight to Russia than it is for America's allies in the Asia Pacific to do the same thing. You know, but so, you know, I think that we, your observation is correct that it is, it is true that, you know, as America is forced into more choices and more compromises and um, refocuses more on the Asia Pacific, then that changes the local dynamics in some regions. You know, it's already changed the dynamic in Europe. It's changing it in the Middle East. But, you know, mm. that that can be or should be an opportunity for um, states in those regions to start carrying some of the weight in this this global line system. Mm. Now, I'm not actually very confident that that's going to happen in, in, in Europe, you know, because, well, you know, we all know the reasons why, you know, the European states are very divided over this question. You know, there's not much domestic support for um, increased defense spending. But, you know, and I I think that though this is just a, a fact of life as, as we live under it now. So I think that, you know, I think that your point is definitely true, I, but I don't take it as kind of contradicting um, what I'm saying, okay. but I, I think that it's a reason why we might expect a negative outcome from this process. But I guess that I, I don't see the process that I'm dis de uh, describing as, as a normative one. I'm just saying that I think that empirically this is what's happening. Um, so, Edmund, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on and posing these questions. And, and I think we've had a really good discussion. It's been a longer episode than usual, but this is an incredibly important topic. So I think that it was really worth uh, getting down My into pleasure. the weeds of this. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, and I hope we'll welcome you back on again in the future. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs>